Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony here and welcome to today's podcast. I just want to take a moment to say thank you for all the compliments and reviews on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Now, if you're listening to this, it probably means that you're a hairdresser. And in many cases, it also means that you are the salon owner. And therefore, you're looking for ideas to build a better business. Now, I've been around a little while. That doesn't make me old, but it does make me very experienced. And I've seen a lot of salon businesses and met a lot of salon owners in a lot of different countries. However, there are two businesses that stand out as being in the top five salon businesses in the world, and I have no idea who would take the other three spots. I suppose what qualifies a salon business as being best in the world all depends on what criteria you're using to define what a great business is. But if it's about having a great culture, offering great training and a real career path and great team retention and consistently having 20% plus in retail and having a consistently profitable business, then you are in the right place. I'm lucky enough to be able to bring the owners of both of these salons to you in the podcast this month. I purposely split them up a little to give you room to listen and re-listen. The first one, in case you missed it, was two or three weeks back with David Wagner from the Jute Salons in the United States. And so if you haven't checked it out, go back and have a listen. The second one is my guest today, and he is Van Council, founder and owner of the Van Michael Salons in Atlanta, Georgia. And they are an incredible business. In today's podcast, we will discuss adapting your business model to the times that we live in, the importance of standards, training, systems, and giving exceptional service, lessons in leadership, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Van Council. Good morning, Anthony. Uh, Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your uh, podcast today. So it's going to be exciting to be able to talk to you. I always learn a lot from you. Uh, you're one of the leaders in the industry, so it's great to be here. Oh, cheers, man. That's, that's very kind of you to say that. I, uh, I'm very excited about having you on the show. I, I love your accent to start with. Uh, <laughs> and uh, every time I listen to you speak, you know, or read anything you've written, it is also so grounded in reality. And I, I had the, 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 the pleasure to visit uh, Atlanta, it was just before COVID. And when I was in Atlanta, the thing I wanted to do more than anything else was to get to your Buckhead Salon. And I did. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't there. Uh, but I had, uh, I think it was your manager gave me a tour of the location. And I, I must admit, my, my jaw was dropped for most of the time because I've been in this industry the same amount of time as you. We're the same age. I've seen a lot of businesses in a lot of countries. And when you see a business like that, you know that you are seeing something that is serious, without a doubt. So this opportunity to talk to you today is something I've been hanging out for. Uh, 
So um, let's let's jump in. Uh, as I said to you before we started recording, a lot of my audience will know you because they're American based, but I also have you know a very diverse audience in in the UK, Australia, and you know generally speaking the English speaking world and uh, uh, English speakers who are in European and Asian countries. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with who you are, let's just start with an overview of you and your background. So just give us sort of the you know the one or two minute backstory of who is Van Council, and then we'll dig into all the good stuff. Okay, well, I've been in the business for 45 years. Uh, I was born and raised in Georgia. Uh, I now have eight salons in Atlanta. We have about 430 employees here. And uh, then I have a partnership in Japan where we have 42 salons, and there's probably about 800 employees there. So... I've been associated with a couple of different product companies, but mainly Aveda for almost 40 years. So, um, you know, I love what I do. I've been doing it a long time. I, I don't even know how to quit at this point. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing it so long, but yeah, it's pretty much, you know, the quick story. Great. No, that's okay. That's the perfect setup here. When I, when I hear you talk about your early upbringing and, and where you grew up, et cetera, the transition into a hairdressing career seems pretty much left the field. So let's just go right to the beginning. How, how did you get into this industry? Well, I've told the story so many times <laughs> uh, after 45 years. It's a little cheesy, but I am guilty. I saw the movie Shampoo my junior year in high school with Warren Beatty and Dodi Hans, and it was based, I didn't know at the time it was a true story, based on a true story of Gene Chacove who was Vidal Sassoon's first partner in the U.S. I guess they did the first salon in L.A. together or something. But uh, anyhow, I saw the movie, and uh, that was it for me, man. I'm like, you know, I knew I liked women, and I spent most of my childhood playing one sport after the other. We always had jobs. I didn't really study very hard, so my grades weren't very good. So... You know, I looked into hairdressing and it was nine months and pretty cheap to get into. So I gave it a go. Okay. Well, I'm, as I said, I'm the same age. I saw the same movie and I had the same influence on me. So I think, I, I think that movie got a lot of us into the business yeah. back in those days. Yeah, definitely. And I just learned something. I mean, you know, I was at Sassoon for 10 years. Uh, I know that the movie was based on a true story of Gene Chakov. And I don't think I ever knew what you just said, that he was Vidal's first partner in uh, yeah, the United that's, States. That's what I, yeah, that's what I, yeah. I hope I'm not wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Wow, well, I'm sure someone will tell us if it is, but that, that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's great to pick up that bit of information. So, okay, so you, you went to, as everyone in the United States does, well, not everyone, I know you do have apprenticeships, but yeah. very few people do the apprenticeship model. Yeah. Almost everyone does uh, the beauty school route. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that Atlanta is one of the only states where you do offer apprenticeships, isn't it, yeah? We do, yeah, we do both. We have beauty schools and we also offer apprenticeships you know, through our salon. So yeah, right. you can do both here. Okay, so, so I, you did the beauty school route, yeah? I did, I literally didn't know one hairdresser. So I had no mentors or any coaching or anybody asked what to do, I just, did a lot of homework and went to what I thought was supposed to be a good beauty school in Georgia. But 1976, that I found out that really didn't exist. 
a good beauty school in Georgia. So I did go to a cosmetology school. It cost me almost, it was like 2,500 bucks to go to school. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, it's certainly gone up a bit since then. Okay. So yeah. just talk us through those early years. Like you do beauty school, you come out of beauty school. What, what, what happened next? Well, so I, I felt like a fish out of water for sure. You know, I didn't feel like I fit in very well. But yeah, my first day I went home and thought, what the heck have I got myself into? And they gave me the white lab coat, the little kit with all the rollers and clippies. And yeah. I didn't know what any of them were. I had never touched anybody's hair. You know, so uh, first year was a little rough. I actually, when I got out of beauty school, I decided not to do hair. And uh, I got a job doing construction. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about this. My mom kept riding me because she's like, she paid the 2,500 bucks, you know? And uh, one of the guys I went to beauty school with was like, we're in the same class the same day. He works in the salon with me now. Like we're still together as friends. Wow. He got a salon. He got a job out in a little salon north of Atlanta charging $6 a haircut. And uh, I would go by there in the afternoons when he got from work, we'd go out partying and drinking. And so the guy that owned the salon, every time I, I would go in, he's like, why don't you come to work? Why don't you come to work? And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do hair. But finally I gave in and started working with my friend. And uh, then from there, you know, I bounced around a little bit, but I did, that guy recommend recommended that I go to school in London, take a six week course. And I looked into it and I thought I had never flown. I'd never been on a plane. I wow. was 19 years old. Yeah. And uh, my first trip was to London, you know, for six weeks. So yeah. uh, I always tell people to ask me, where did I grow up at? I always say London. <laughs> Cause 19 years old in London for six weeks. I did a lot of growing up. Yeah. But what I learned there, because people came from all over the world to that Academy. And I was meeting people who'd been in the business for 35 years and 20 years and had chains of salon and charging $150 a haircut back in the 70s. And, you know, that's when I realized that this business could be, you know, very, a very lucrative, very professional career. You know, like my idea of what hairdressing was before that was totally different. It was more about just making money and having a party. You know, so if you would ask me when I got out of high school, we were so we were so uneducated, honestly. When I got out of high school, if you'd ask me what the average household income earned, I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. So when I went to beauty school, I had no idea how much money hairdressers could make. And I had no idea how much money you needed to live on either, <laughs> you know, because we grew up without money. So we never really thought about money. Yeah. You know, so I wasn't chasing money. I was just trying to get into something I thought would be fun. Yeah. And uh, the movie made it look fun. But going to London just changed my whole perspective. So when I came back to Atlanta, I knew I had to change salon. So that's when I went from north of the city, moved back into like midtown, downtown area where the nice salons were. And I got in a job with a French Canadian guy. And, and I found out at that time, but Dallas Sassoon had opened up a salon in the 70s and it closed. And all these Sassoon guys went to work in this salon that I went. David McCann, yep. Ricky Israel, Scott Cole. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know any of those. Oh, guys. no, Ricky's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah, so they had 
sent this all-star cast as soon as it in Atlanta it didn't work, but all the guys stayed. So I got to work with these guys. And, you know, that's when I started learning what hair coding was about, hairdressing was about. And then that's when, you know, I started getting fairly serious about my career, you know, where I was going to go with it, what I was going to do with it. It just taking that trip to London just opened up my eyes, you know, to what I was doing. And I, after I got out of beauty school and I started doing hair in the salons, I mean, I fell in love with doing hair, you know, I mean, my hair become, I mean, it was seven days a week for me, you know, eat, breathe, sleep hair, you know, so I just, I love, I love doing it. What, what was the most important thing when you look back on that six weeks in London? You know, you're a 19 year old kid, never been on an airplane before you, you fly to London. It's a very different place to Atlanta in 1976 uh, or seven or whatever it was. What, what um, when you look back on it, what was the most important thing that you learned during that time? I learned, well, like, first of all, we go there in the 70s, punk rock was really in, the King's Road, yeah. uh, rave, rave parties, I mean, stuff like, so I learned to me, like, my style, you know, like, the way I was dressing when I came back was completely different from what I had when I went there, yeah. and uh, I learned how to kind of create an eye you know, for shapes and what looked good. I mean, this was just made me see hairdressing in a whole different way. You know, right. it was just like, I had no idea because I was cutting hair like a bob was more, I was, you know, taught in the school I went to, you poured it all down and cut it. Uh, you didn't section anything. Yeah. All of a sudden I'm there and they're like, take 500 sections to get a straight line, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And okay. uh, so, it, I mean, really, it was like really starting because beauty school here, I didn't learn anything. I mean, yeah. I, that's why I went to construction because I had no confidence in doing hair. Yeah. But after going to London and taking that course, you know, it just made me really see. And I, I mean, I watched some amazing haircuts there. I, I probably watched people cut hair there in the 70s that was better than, than I ever got to be. I mean, these young kids that just, and they were doing it for the love of it, you yeah. know, and that was uh, very inspiring to me that they weren't there to make money. They just love doing great work. Yeah. I, um, interestingly enough, I did construction as well before hairdressing. So ex yeah. exactly the same uh, journey there. I, I'm curious. I, I wasn't going to ask you about this. I'd forgotten about Sassoon having a salon in Atlanta. Um, but yeah. yes, I, I remember they did. Ricky Israel worked there, for example, and he was a good, uh, is still a friend of mine. Um, yeah. Why do you think it didn't work? They picked a terrible location. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was a number of things, but location was key. They went in a hotel downtown Atlanta that, Nobody went downtown. They, people still, downtown Atlanta has never been vibrant. I mean, it's not a place people go. Yeah. You know, it's just never been. So they were in the, like the Hilton downtown. I mean, yeah, Slons, I don't know if anybody could have ever made it there. And then all those guys come to town without any round brushes. I mean, it was yeah. the South. Yeah, in the exactly. 70s, right? And we're doing berets. <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think the work was probably too progressive. Yeah. You know, but more than anything, I think it was location. And, yeah. you know, they sent all this. I look back and think about it now. I wish when I got out of beauty school, I wish I knew they were there, you know, because they were, but I didn't know. I would have been down there the first day wanting to get a job as an assistant. But, uh, they, uh, yeah, I think it's just the location was bad. But I think about all the people they sent, a the whole staff, no clients, all salary. 
I mean, that's a pretty much finance, big financial bleed right there, you know. So, but it's funny to me that they closed down. Like Justin Willis is still here, and I mean, all those guys must love Atlanta because they all stayed in Atlanta. Oh, all went city. to little different shops. Mm. Yeah, Scott ended up opening up a salon, and I didn't even know about him till about six or seven years that I was into the hairdressing business before I even realized that Scott was in town and from that same staff. And that's when I went to work for Scott Cole eventually. Yeah. Okay. So what, what point did you know it was time to open up a business of your own? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up in a family of no entrepreneurs, like nobody had their own business. And uh, I never really wanted my own business. But I, I did hair for about eight years in Atlanta. Now I moved around. I worked in three, four different salons before I opened up my own. And um, the last one I worked for was Scott. And Scott, to this day, is one of the best hair cutters I've ever seen. Uh, but he was a young guy, too, owning a little salon in Atlanta, you know, and uh I was there for a couple of years. Every time I moved, I, I never moved for another. I never moved one salon to the other, only except for one reason. It was for education. If I found out somebody had a shop that I thought I could be better, learn more, I went to work there. It wasn't for more money or more commission or any of that or, or that I was unhappy with people I was working with. I always left because I felt like, oh, these, these guys are doing better work. But after I was with for Scott for a couple of years, you know, at this point I'm 25, 26, and I just felt like there wasn't a place in Atlanta to give me what I wanted. You know, I wanted to have a better high-end customer service than that we were giving people. Uh, I wanted to have benefits, you know. I wanted to have a salon where people had high earning power, paid vacation, paid insurance. A pension plan, you know, 401k. So I, I, before I left Scott, I went and interviewed all over Atlanta, you know, because I was once again thinking, you know, I needed all these benefits that I didn't have and no, no one had it. So that's when I decided, well, maybe I could just do this myself. And so I found a little space and uh, we opened up in 1984. It was about probably seven, 800 square feet. We had seven chairs and that's how we got started. But we started from the very beginning paying half of everyone's insurance. And within a year, I implemented the 401k, you know, into the company. So even after being open for a year or so, you know, I wanted to create a place that people could learn, be creative, you know, use both sides of the brain, you know, know how to know what average retail ticket is and average service sales is. But at the same time, don't forget that we are creative hairdressers, you know, doing photo shoots and shows. And so it was just kind of time, uh, you know, at that point, I realized it was time for me to do what, create what I would want to be part of myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what was that like when you said we opened up? Uh, was there, was it your, with your brother? I, I should have introduced that actually at yeah. the beginning and said that your brother yeah. was your business partner. Was it the two of you who started? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, my younger brother. So, yeah, so we went in together and he was working uh, actually for the French Canadian guy that I had worked for earlier in my career. So, yeah. and when he, when my brother got out of beauty school, I got him a job. At that time, I knew about Scott. So, I got him a job. He apprenticed under Scott for a year. 
So I was, I, he had a little bit more like, hey, go here, go here, work there, train under these people. You know, I was able to mentor and coach him on the path to go. I had to just kind of figure things out. But it was just, it just seemed like it was time to do my own shop, you know. Yeah. And um, like I said, it was scary, but it was a different day and time. I, I pulled up in front of a building and, I mean, a little space, and I called the number on it and went by the guy's office and signed the lease that day with no money and no lawyer <laughs> it was a two-page lease and uh i don't even know how i got the space i didn't even have a checking account for real uh, right uh, and, and so and that is still the location that you're in now but is that right yeah. when i say that right okay and so that bucket that is, location, that is correct when i walked around yeah. it, it it is a huge space um did i am i right saying it's about nine thousand square feet it's exactly right nine thousand square feet with we have like 75 chairs and uh, there's about 110 employees in that location. Right. So you expanded within that space. Yeah. Originally it was 800 square feet or something. It's now 12 times the yeah. size of what it was originally. Yeah. We just kept getting a thousand on this side, a thousand on that side. It just kept going. Yeah. And it was 10 years before I did my second salon because I never wanted a second location because I wanted to be in there and see what was happening, you know? And yeah. once it just got so big and there was nowhere else to go, that's when I decided to do the second location. And I did that the same way. I opened that salon up. It was about, the second one's about 700 square feet. And after about a year and a half of space came next door, we went to 2,500. So third location did the same thing. Opened up one a thousand and then ended up being 5,000. So I've always been very conservative. You know, I don't just go out and open up 10,000 square feet and hope I, I can fill it up. You know, I always start off and expand. And and so it's always been self-funded growth. No uh, extra yeah. partners. You've just learned the hard way and, and push forward bit by bit yourself. Okay. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty much. I, I did. I do have some extra partners. They all work in the salon. So after we got up to the fourth location just to give people an opportunity. If you'd been in the company for 10 years, uh, I gave people an opportunity to buy into the last four locations and I would sell 30% of it. Yeah. So I have these locations where there'd be three partners in with me in that location. And I all have 10% each, you know, so now I have eight partners that's done that with me, but they've all, all those guys now have been in the company, 25 30 years each fantastic that that is a real yeah. uh lesson for a lot of people to learn i think you know when you're trying to keep talent if you can start to give them opportunity and financial security yeah. within the business it's a great way to grow you know and, and it then is less reliant on you having to be there to run and manage the business and make those tough decisions so uh i think i think well it's funny it's funny it was you know to keep people to keep talent you know i felt like they deserved the have partners some ownership and something but none of them work in the locations that they have ownership of really they work in other locations is it, yeah i just wanted it that? to be like an investment okay well because i had seen too many hairdressers in my life run their staff off you know most most salon owners are the biggest enemy they they never get past one or two locations because they have so much turnover and they're the cause of the turnover so I wanted me and my managers to run the company the way we want it ran. And I didn't want to deal with 
if somebody had an ego wanting to do it their way. Okay. And so I felt like it was best just not to let them be in those locations. You know, and it's really worked out. Yeah. It worked out well, you know, because they're happy. They didn't really want to be owners or managers in that sense anyhow. You know what I mean? They all have four books. Really, a hairdresser that has a full book don't really have time to manage anyhow. Yeah, exactly. You know, because I, I, yeah, so I have, you know, so we have managers, a management team, and we get to meet with them and train them. And, you know, so I just, yeah, I didn't want partners to manage the locations. I just was giving them, I, I wanted them to stay in the company and be leaders, but yeah. not managers. So you, know? you, you, you paint this picture of when you opened your first salon of having, next to no business acumen. Uh, but it was just, you know, you, you, you rocked up, you signed a two-page lease, you, you didn't even know what the rent was, whatever. You know. I, I did it. Uh, <laughs> it's incredible. So what, what I wanted to ask you was, and obviously you have a lot of business acumen now. So first of all, what, what, what is the, what's the thing you wish you knew before you opened a salon? Is there any one thing that stands out? Uh, I mean, I didn't even look at P&Ls for the first 10 years, honestly. I never even looked at a monthly P&L. So, yeah, I wish I knew a little bit more about P&Ls and, and budgets. <laughs> I didn't have any of that. So, but we still made money, you know, because one, we were producing so much ourselves, you know, yeah. me and my brother. We were like being the heavy end. But, yeah, I wish I would have had, you know, some more um, mentoring in business, you know, and coaching people. I, I had to learn as I went. I read hundreds and hundreds of books and went to tons of seminars and, you know, started connecting with salon owners and finding out. So, you know, it would have saved me a lot of time and probably some mistakes or some lessons if I'd had a little bit more business experience numbers, you know. But yeah. what I tell people now when they go in to open up a salon, I didn't even know. I mean, just you don't really need to know it. You just got to make sure you hire people who know it really well that you trust. Yeah. You know, as long as you have good people around you that know it. I mean, now, you know, of course, you have CPA firms and full account. Uh, account. I, I sat down now and let them tell me the things I don't want to hear. <laughs> it's almost good that I didn't know it the first 10 years, right? But uh, anyhow, but, yeah, I just I wish I would have had a little bit, you know, knew more about what I was doing with the numbers. Okay. I mean, it's like everybody. I started off paying higher commissions than I should have. I mean, I didn't know, you know, but it's funny the people I did, they're still there, they're grandfathered in. But, you know, every few years you had like, okay, we're going to take it down a notch, a notch, because things get more expensive. And as you grow, the margins get tighter and tighter. Yeah. So what, what, what is yeah. the key to successful expansion? I mean, you've got a big business now in terms of sales volume and, you know, in terms of number yeah. of staff. I think you said 400-odd staff just in Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, that's a big business. What, what's the number one key to expanding successfully? Well, I never had a goal to have, like, more than one salon or any size at all, like, no goals. But I knew from, you know, studying Sassoon and Tony and Guy and, um, horse salons, you know, that, you know, we create a training program from the yeah. get go, training our own people and people didn't leave. So I would only open up a salon when I knew I had enough of people in my training program ready to go on the floor and they were trained. So I'd open up another location because I needed chairs, you know, and, um, 
I would only go five miles away where I could take some senior people to move there and all the clients would fall them to get that one busy and at least cash flow in itself right off the bat. But I would never, I would never open up a salon with 20 chairs and have to go run ads or recruit or try to get people. You know, I would only, I would only open up salons as I needed more chairs, you know, for staff. As long as I had my staff, my people, I would do another location and I would only go five miles away. I mean, all eight of our salons now in Atlanta is in a 10 mile radius altogether, you know? So, um, uh, so that's, that's my thing about expanding. I, I just would never, I don't have a goal to have any more. If I run out of chairs now, I'll do another one, but it seems like we're at the point of it's just all we can do is natural attrition to keep the ones filled. Yeah. So I have people reaching out to me all the time about new locations and, uh, you know, and developments. And I'm like, no, because I don't have the people. You know, I don't ever want empty chairs. You know, yeah. we're after COVID, everything hit. We're the first time in my whole 38 years that we have empty chairs. I think we have six right now in the whole company, you know, out of 250 chairs. You know, we have six. So to me, that's a lot. I've never had six. Yeah. And we'll fill them because we're starting to get recruiting and all that. But, you know, for two years, everything was kind of on hold. And um, so that was my thing. And we, we did move the salon during COVID. We already had signed a new lease, already started construction. COVID shut us down. I taught the construction crew to not stop. So we kept building through COVID and it was ready to open. And when we opened back up from COVID, we did open up a new location, but it was a previous location that went from about 2,000 square feet to 4,500. So that's the other way I expand too. I just move one and make it bigger, but I never go out and just pick a big location with a bunch of chairs and wonder where I'm going to get staff from. I would, yeah. I, I would never, I'm not that brave. <laughs> yeah. And so, so the and, and quality. And quality is very important to me. No matter how big I get, I still have quality control. You know, I still like, even through, I know millennials, everybody told me how people don't want to work and train, but we still put everybody to this day through a two-year training program, yeah. uh, you know, ourselves to work for us. Well, I'm going to dig into that in a minute, but uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you know, all those salons in a 10-mile radius, that's really a tight radius for the volume of clients that, that you that you yes. see. And I totally understand your thinking behind it. I think that's, uh, you know, that, that that's really important in terms of maintaining that brand recognition, that brand equity. I, I do know, because I've heard you talk about before, how you dabbled with a, uh, a well, you more than dabbled. You had a salon in Florida or Miami for a while, didn't you? I did. Uh, I and, did, yeah. And that worked, but everything that you're talking about now in terms of being able to have that brand equity and being able to move people around obviously just simply wasn't possible. So, yeah. Yeah, it it took me seven years down there to start get it to break even, you know, yeah. because, because we you – know, it never was as good quality-wise as the Atlanta salons. Yeah. You know, you just lose that infrastructure, that training system. Yeah, it's very hard. If you really look at salons, you know, especially I'm talking about in the United States, no one's done high end across the country successfully. They all always assume Tony and Guy, they all they all end up in malls eventually. Yeah. You know, because it's just too hard to keep that culture, you know, like you have when you have your own brand in town, your own sure. training. I and mean, we put we put everybody that we hire 
desk people through two-week training in the office to put them in the location. You know, they train two weeks on just how to book an appointment and how to answer the phones. Where in Miami, it was just kind of like typical. We just hired them and they got on-the-job training, you know. Yeah. It's like wave us lines still doing, you know. So it was hard, but we were finally doing well down there and we lost our lease and rent was so high. And I'm like, basically I was 60 years old and I'm like, I think I'm going to check out of Miami. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a tough, you know, it's funny too. Different markets are really different. People told me things about Miami. I didn't believe. And they said, Oh, you can't open before 12 o'clock. I'm like, Oh, come on. They're like, no, you can't. No, they have no customers. I did not believe that. I tried to open at nine o'clock all land hours. It was true. You do not open for 12 o'clock in Miami. And things are jamming at 10 at night in Miami where in Atlanta, it's quieting down at 10 at night. So yeah. you have to watch, you know, getting into cultures that you don't know. I just didn't think Miami and Atlanta would be that much different, but it really wasn't. You got all the different texture of hair there. I mean, people get one haircut a year. They get a lot of blow dries. Yeah. Uh, completely, completely different hair scene than Atlanta. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to, I mentioned to you before we started recording, uh, David Wagner, your, your good buddy, uh, just the other day. And he was saying something very similar to that in that he said, you know, one of the, the things that's really important if you want to expand is that you need to, you need to go from one to two and then three to four quickly because right. uh, you need to be able to, able to be afford to put that infrastructure in place. You know, that, that head office, that, that, you know, the HR, the accounts, all that sort of business yeah. overview to make it work. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously easier when you're, you know, closer together as opposed to uh, spread around the yeah. country, as you just said. Another thing I just want to pick up on, you, you mentioned a minute ago uh, that you've read a lot of books and that you, and I've heard you say that before, from a, from a business, you know, so very much it's self-education. From a, from a business yeah. point of view, um, in fact, I've even heard you say you read a book a week or you strive to. What's the one book that you'd say, do you know what, this, this one here was a game changer? Is there any one that stands out? Uh, probably, I'll, I'll say two books was a game changer to me. One was The E-Myth, yeah. you know, and it, a lot of us read that one. But it did make me realize, like, did I want to own a job or own a business? Yeah. I knew I had to, like, get all the right people in place that, I had a little bit more flexibility and freedom in my schedule than I had, you know, and I didn't want it totally to rely just on me. Like I, I now I'm around, I'm very involved in my business, but I know if I don't go for a week or two, it's good. You know, I got the right people around me running it. And then the other would be, uh, I tell the story all the time is the purple cow that I'm always making sure that we're trying to be, you know, doing something different that other salons aren't doing. Yeah, you know, or doing it better, and, and that's even if we're taking care of customers or the way we're taking care of our, our staff. You know, like every new person that comes to work for us in Atlanta, I take them to dinner. Still, I just had because we didn't get to do it during COVID, so I just had a dinner for fifty people that all had started in the last two years. Then, mm. then within the same week, I took my top twenty producers out to another dinner because we hadn't ever do that, and then I had. A dinner with people who've been in the new talents who are graduating in Van Michael. That was another 10 people. So I, I bought dinner for about 100 people in the last week, you know, <laughs> celebrating. But, but that's a purple cow thing that I'm trying to get to know every single employee, you know, yeah. and uh, making them, and I don't want to use the word making them 
feel important because they are important, but making sure they know that they're important, you know. So I would say those two books, Purple Cow, The E-Myth, I read one called Double Your Profits. Uh, that was good because it told me every three years to rebid everything. And we pretty much do that, okay. you know, to keep prices from going up. So we rebid everything three years. So just, you know, like I said, just a lot of books, a lot, a lot of business books. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I was really impressed with when I walked around your business was your call center. Um, you know, I've heard of salons with call centers before. I've seen salons with call centers before. But yours blew me away. I mean, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, just just talk us through, um, you know, how you arrived at that and, and what the function of that call center is, because I believe that is a call center for all of your salons in Atlanta. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. So it's funny. I, it kind of accidentally happened. Like, you know, like I said, we started off with seven chairs and we kept getting different spaces. So every time we'd renovate and things would be different. So at one point, that call center where you saw, it's been in the same place. It was almost at that time in the center of the salon that when people walked in, we had the desk down below. Then we had to, we were trying to save space. Yeah. So we built this tower yeah. and put the people up in the tower that they didn't take up any room. Yeah. But this became our call center. We call it hair traffic control. Yeah, you know, I can see that, why. Uh, you know, that's, that's how it came about. We were trying to save space, and we put all the people up in the air and put the shield around where they can hear, hear in their headsets. But, you know, I didn't want people answering the phone at the desk because clients come in, and they're trying to answer phone. And I just wanted to break up the customer service, a check-in area, a check-out a area where just they focus on answering the phones. And this was probably back in – 86 or 87 when we built that tower up there to create that call center. And then as we expanded salons, we, you know, at a certain point, we realized we could handle all the calls in there, you know? So that's really, we just kind of stumbled on it. You know, it just kind of happened. <laughs> the call center did in the, in, in the air. So, so how, how many operators do you have in there in the call center? Uh, we have a, I tell you, now we have online booking, and that's taken a lot of pressure off. We actually, each location has people in a little office that if, the, if they're not answering in a certain time, yeah. it will kick to a location that, that they're calling for, and we have okay. a backup there. We like. I'm going to go back to 2019 numbers just because before COVID. I know 2019 we answered 360,000 calls. And and ninety percent of the calls were answered within twenty seconds, you know. So wow. I would say I got somebody. How many people we have answering the phones? Twenty something, twenty five, twenty six people altogether. Just on answering the phones. Yeah, and we have yeah. now a lot of most of them are working from home now. We have it where they can have their laptop. They can we can see them log in. We can see how many uh, calls they take in a day. You know, get a whole report of how long how long does it take, and you know we we can listen to every phone call. We have the capability. Every call that comes in is recorded. But so now we have people living in Florida, living in Ohio, answering our phones. Fantastic. So now when you come in, you don't see you don't see that many people. Yeah, they're yeah. at home. Answering, yeah, working. It's people who work for us who moved and said, "Can I keep working?" And we figured out they could do it from home. So Great. we're getting less less and less people, you know, in the call center that you actually see. Sometimes I walk through, there's no one in there in the middle of the day. I'm like, 
Uh, they're like, oh, we got it. We're, everybody's at home. So new day and time. Exactly. I mean, who would have imagined that 20 years ago? You know, that, no, I mean, what, what, what the technology yeah. enables you to do. Uh, are you still behind the chair at all? Do you, do you work on clients at all? I'm, I'm not. No, I've, I quit working behind the chair in 1996. Right. I've been out for 20, 23 years or something like that now. Okay. You make it sound like yeah. a role. <laughs> I've, been out, I've been out for 20 years. I got, I got good behavior. Really. <laughs> you know what? I have days where I miss it. You know, yeah. I can't, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't know if I missed it every day because, but I, I, let me see, we had three locations and I, I always booked 25, 30 clients a day myself. You know, so I had three chairs, I had three, four assistants working for me, colorists. And I was working with Aveda and I was doing at least 15 to 20 shows a year. So yeah. I was doing clients five days a week. I'd finish my last one on Saturday, have a car service waiting on me, fly me somewhere, have a model car in Dallas, do a show Sunday night, prep models all day Sunday, do a workshop Monday, fly back in, back in the slot on Tuesday. And I'd have a lot of time 10 weeks in a row where I didn't have a day off and doing that many clients one morning I woke up I'm like man I'm like you know and I I miss it I just felt like I got too busy I had at that point about 200 staff you know that I had to constantly meet with coaching managing and it just got where it was too much you know but I enjoyed working behind the chair that was the easiest part yeah actually he was working behind the chair you know it's uh I never was the greatest hairdresser in the world by any means, but I was really good at kissing the ass behind the chair, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So I, well, I always felt confident if I got a client in my chair, I could bring them back, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's what I try to, that's what I try to teach my staff is how to do great consultations, how to do blow dry lessons, stress relieving treatments. You know, I would write down every single thing on every client. I had a notepad, I'd write down your name, your wife's husband's name, kid's name, you know, what we did to your hair, what changes, what we talked about. And I'd go in every morning, pull out all my cars. I'd review on everybody. And, uh, you know, I took working behind the chair very seriously, you know. And um, and that's what we try to teach our people, you know, how to be that purple cow. I mean, how many hairdressers really do what we have? We call it our um, – uh performance will because it's all about performing behind the chair right and if you we have 11 steps and if you master these 11 steps you're going to be busy and you're going to be able to charge whatever you want so it, i just got to the point i couldn't do it all and i stepped out behind the chair but i walk in and buckhead and it's rocking and rolling and humping and sometimes i miss being part of it sure okay um i could say i listen to you all day there's so many good stories and good insights you've got on the industry well one of the things that always intrigues me in the united states is how different it is in different states and one of the things that is is you know quite well known about atlanta is you have a very strong salon business model there you know uh, there's a, you know, people like Candy Shaw, I've had on the podcast yourself, yeah. you know, there's these really strong employee employer based business models where everyone wins out of it. And I often look at it and I think, you know, why is that so strong in Atlanta? And why isn't it as strong in other states? What are your insights on that? Well, I, it is funny. I, I think I put Atlanta 
at the very top of the salon market in the United States or quality salons. You know, it's funny if you take a, a state like Minneapolis, you know, they're another state that has very good salons. And I, I would give that solely the reason is because of Horst. You know, he opened up, then he had people that worked for him, Rocco, John English, all these people spent off. Then they had good people and they spent off. And I think Atlanta is the same thing. You had Jameson and Don Shaw that produced a lot of good hairdressers who had good salons in town. Uh, then those salons produced good people. And then Sassoon came to Atlanta when, very early and all those guys say, I mean, I'm a spinoff from Scott, you know, so I think, you know, once you have a, a couple strong names in the city and, you know, you're always going to have natural attrition and people are going to feed off of those and it creates, you know, a strong marketplace where, you know, some salons you could think about, you know, like a Dallas or Cincinnati. I mean, who, who have they had there like a horse, you know, or Jameson, you know? So I think it's, because of the people that was before us started it, we just kind of carried it on. I will say in Atlanta, we're all very friendly with each other. We all share, you know, I'm good friends with Candy, uh, Jeff South. Um, I mean, there's a lot of good people, Bob Still. Uh, so we're all very, none of, we, we never hire each other's staff. And you know what's interesting? Our staff don't even apply to other people. Like I never had any of the employees even apply for a job with me. Cause we all take people pretty much right out of school yeah. and all the salons know that, you know? So, uh, but I think it's just because, uh, you know, I guess I would give really Atlanta a lot of credit to just Jameson and Don Shaw. Yeah. You know, they probably had the first very good salons in Atlanta and they're still going strong you know, after 50 years and people just duplicate and copy success. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, and you're certainly influencing the generation that's there now in a huge way. Um, how did Japan come about? Because you mentioned in the intro, and I know you've got a, a group of, is it 42 salons in Japan? Uh, it's a, is, it a, is it a franchise business model? It's a, it's a partnership. It's a summer franchise. So there's different things going on inside of that group, actually. Uh, it's probably a little comp more complicated than it should be. Yeah, <laughs> but I was I was artistic director back in 1986 for Joyco. Yeah, and uh, there's a guy named Mr. Nakamura. He owned Dower Planning. You remember the big passion yeah. magazine? Yeah, well, I guess they still have it, right? Okay, but he was a distributor for Joyco in uh, Korea and Japan. So when I was artistic director, they were sending me to Japan regularly. I mean, six weeks at a time, sometimes three times in a year. Yeah. Um, and after I did that for several years, a group of Japanese guys came to me and wanted to do a partnership with me, uh, Van Michael Salons. And I was a little worried about doing a, something. I mean, obviously, that's something I hadn't done, you know, a salon out of the city, more or less, out of the country. I didn't know how it would turn out quality wise. So I didn't let them use the name Van Michael. So I used Van Council Salons, you know, so they call Van Council just to start a whole different company, whole different yeah. brand. But, you know, that's we've been there for 20 years now. So I, I love the group of Japanese people I work with. Uh, we have about twice a year, about 100 of them come to Atlanta for training. 
And then we go there about once a year, the team, and do some training and shows. So it's worked out very well. But it really came from the Joy Car days. Okay. So you're actively involved in it on a regular basis. You go back and forth to Japan. And, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And now that we live in the world of Zoom, I Zoom every Monday night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, used to, it wasn't... Yeah, I used to, I didn't have to, like, be as involved as I am now, which is fine. I don't mind. They're all great. But every Monday night at 9 o'clock my time, because it's 9 o'clock in the morning there, yeah. I do a Zoom where different groups of managers or owners So yeah, okay. every Monday night. So we have a girl over there named Ika that really, she translates for us, but she's kind of head of all of them together, and she's coming here next week for 12 days. It's the first time they've been able to travel in two years. So just, that's another thing that's been kind of put off. And then uh, we'll probably have about 60 of them lined up to come in August. So right. we'll get okay. back on our training. So, yeah. you know, they're a little, they're different from Brian Michael's salons. Uh, they don't, with specialization, they're not, you know, uh, they're working towards it. It's funny when I started working with the Japanese, how behind they were in the industry, the way that they thought. Like they didn't pre-book customers 20 years ago. They said, their, their clients wouldn't do it. And now they do it. They didn't even com- even book on computers when I started working with them. Wow. You know, yeah. <laughs> but you would think the Japanese people would have been way above that. But, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, little, it's a little bit different from what we are here, but they are very good salons and they're very successful and they're very busy, but great, great group of people to work with. Yeah, the tough, the, a tough retail market for them as well. They don't do retail very well, do they? I'd be curious to see how, how, how that works for you. Is it, is it successful they for do you? Not. No, they, don't, they do not do retail very well. No yeah, doubt. it's a shame. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously they've learned an awful lot from you. Let me turn that around. What have you learned from the Japanese that you've integrated into your business? Because you're obviously very receptive to picking up ideas everywhere about service, etc. And the Japanese do have a very strong service culture and stuff, don't they? So what have you picked up from them that you've integrated into Atlanta? Well, I've, I've watched, you know, I've learned from them, you know, just how to treat their employees. You know, they're very... You have a lot of loyalty on both sides, you know, and then uh, just their passion of their craft. You know, I mean, they are, they cut hair very, very well. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're very, very uh, good at what they do. They take it very seriously, but just, they're, just their manners are so polite to each other. You know, the cleanliness, you know, in the salons are just impeccable when you go over, you know, we, not that we weren't before, but when I'm over, I, it just reminds me of how important it is to have all this, you know, good customer service and the cleanness. And in our barbershop here, the one thing we do that we definitely learn from them, um, because they do the best stress relieving treatments, you know, yeah. they have a whole different technique of doing it than the way we do it. But yeah. uh, in our barbershop, we, we do what they call stand-up shampoos there. The client sitting in the chair and you spray water on their hair. Yeah. You mix yeah. the shampoo up and you shampoo yeah. them while they're setting up. So we, we use that in our barber shop. So just little things here and there that I learned from them, yeah. you know, but just really just the mannerisms and just how they treat people is something that I like to watch and I like to uh, duplicate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Okay. Um, we touched on before about your business model um, and, and how successful it is. It's a really strong employee employer business model and other salons in uh, Atlanta, you know, also have that culture. Um, 
But in the world we live in today, there is a lot of change and a lot of movement happening in terms of salon suites and, you know, booth rental, chair rental, you know, whatever you want to call it, freelancers, independent contractors, business unit of one. What are your thoughts about that? Well, we're, we're definitely under attack. Our industry is in a lot of ways. I mean, we're dealing with salon laws who are just blatantly recruiting your people and sending them messages. So I actually, I'm fighting back against that. A lot of, I've, I've known a lot of friends. We haven't been really hit too much. We did just recently lose four people for maybe the first time in three, four years that we've lost. They went to salon laws. But uh, I've actually had a meeting with the people from salon laws and made it really clear that I won't be your training programs. You know, like, I don't mind if people get out of school or wherever they come from, they go to a loft and they build their own business. But I'm not going to let people come into my business, me train them, and we hand them a clientele and then not fight back for my business. But, you know, they are making us reset the way we look at things. I mean, we're more flexible than we've ever been. After you go on the floor now, you can work three days, four days a week. You say we're five days no exceptions, had to work Saturdays for the first five years. So we're bending all that. Mm -hmm. I'm announcing to my staff in May, they don't even even know this yet. So we're going to be like, you get you get two weeks paid vacation now. And before you would get one week nine, you could be off up to three weeks. So starting this year, I'm going to give them two weeks paid vacation and unlimited days off, you know, so um, have off all you want. You know, no, just plan it out in advance because the reason the surveys say the reason people go there because they want to be their own boss, they want to come and go as they please. I'm pretty much going to let them because I figure they're going to figure out pretty soon they're going to have to work to make money. Yeah. Number two, if they don't, if they don't come to work, they're going to lose their clients back to the salon, you know, to the hairdressers there. It's better than leaving. So, you know, it's making us reset, uh, you know how we run our companies for sure for a different generation mm. we're trying to shorten the, the training program a little bit it's difficult to have people to give people experience without giving them experience you know what i mean like to me it takes two years at least for a person to be good enough to just do hair on a high-end level you yeah. know uh so we're trying to figure out though just how, how to make things easier we're definitely you know we've had to up our pay, you know, to get to recruit. We're 2018 and 2019, we're averaging over 500 applications a year for interns. And now we're not even a fourth of that, you know, because these kids don't want, they don't, they don't want to train. But, you know, COVID threw everything off. We weren't able to recruit in the schools. You know, we're just now last week, we were able to go back into the salons and do, in, you know, in uh, recruiting in the schools. So it's just, you know, the hope. And then retail is completely different now because everybody can shop online and they do, you know, so we definitely have our challenges, you know, we, and, you know, we just got to focus harder, you know, than we were before, you know, I always tell people getting to the top is it's not easy to get to the top, but what's harder than getting to the top is staying on the top. Yeah. You know, it's like we've been open 38 years, you know, we're, uh, we've never had a down year until COVID hit. I thought we had, We've been through three recessions. I thought we were, uh, it never happened. I got, I learned my lesson. Anything could happen and be ready. So we're just putting our foot back on the gas. We're training more, but we're trying to be more flexible with the hairdressers. Yeah. You know, we're just, 
you can work three days a week, but we may have to tell you what those three days are where we can fill those chairs. We just can't have empty chairs. You know, like you might do three, then I do three out of the same chair, right, during the yeah. week. You know, so that's what we're working on, just more shifting chairs, letting people work less hours. Uh, hopefully they'll figure it out themselves at the end of the year how much it costs them not to go to work. But if they think that, um, you know, that's what they want out of a running a room is their flexibility, then we're going to give them that flexibility and see how it works out. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have to, don't you? You have to be constantly yeah. evolving and adapting as a business and, uh, yeah. and seeing what works and what doesn't and then responding accordingly. With uh, the other thing that you do that not a lot of salons do in the US is uh, the specialization thing. Are you still really adamant about that, that you either cut or you color? 100%. Yeah. I've had people try to talk me out of it recently. So we, a lot of people apply. And they don't come to work because they want to do both. But, you know, the reason I chose specialization, like I said, I, I looked around many years ago. The first seven years we opened up, we were not. And I decided after seven years to go specialization. And that was quite a transition to go through. But, you know, I looked at all the top salons, Frederick Foucault, Horse, Sassoon, Tony and Guy. Every top salon was specialization. So that told me, aha, uh -huh, well, Obviously, that's the way to go, but I just believe somebody does 10 colors a day for 10 years is, is better than the guy that does two colors a day, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's the best way to excellence, yeah. specialization. And now, and this is not why I did it. So I, the reason I did it was for excellence, to be better, to be a purple cow, mm -hmm. right? The service is better. I used to do both. I'd start a haircut. I'd get halfway through it. I'd have to say, excuse me. I got to go over here and check this color. I'll leave her setting by herself. The color is not quite ready. I come back and cut two more sections. Excuse me again. Yeah. Got to go check my color. Now, you know, somebody comes in, they're booked with a cutter for 45 minutes. They shampoo it. They consultation. They cut it. They dry it. They never leave that person, right? It's better service, better quality. But now with all the rentals and all the stuff that's going on in the industry, one reason we don't have much turnover because people don't do both. If people did both to the client, we would have more turnover and we have less chance to keep those clients. Cause so if a cutter leaves, half of his clientele or her clientele is coming back in to get color. So yeah. all we've got to do is offer a couple, three free haircuts and we keep 80% of the clients every time. Yeah. We just had a girl leave a colorist and, we, we called all our clients personally and offered them four free colors. We rebooked 90% of them, wow. you know? So yeah. to me, yeah, to me, so, you know, I think it's very important now more than ever to do specialization. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Our people are charging $150, $200 a haircut, you know, the top people, and they're making 200000 a year, colors and cutters. I believe they make more money. It's funny. I've talked about the people in my company I went to beauty school with. I have three of them. That was in my beauty school class. They've been in the company for 38 years and they're grandfathered in. They cut and color and they're booked all the time and they're never in my top producers. My, all my cutters beat them and my colors beat them. You know, they don't get in the top 10 on e either category. Yeah. You know, even when you combine their numbers, they, they can't produce as much as the people who are doing specialization.
Yeah. So at least, that, at least in my company, that, that's the way it works. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. I run my business yeah. exactly the same way. Um, yeah. you, you, you've often, you've touched on your uh, new talent uh, and your training program. Um, just talk to us about that for a minute. This two-year training program that you've got that you put people through straight out of beauty school um, and that they work in a separate salon of yours, don't they, called New Talent. Is that correct? Yeah, if you notice when you came in Buckhead, the right side of the salon was New Talents and the left side was Van Michael. So, yeah. you know, it's funny, I would, my old school ways, you know, we'd take somebody out of school and they'd stand behind me and blow dry and sweep hair. And then every Monday they would have a class. And, um, you know, some Mondays I'd have a model, some Mondays they wouldn't. But I learned after a year when I put them on the floor, the client retention was terrible. And they're almost, they're almost better when I first got them out of school because over the course of the next year now, they've only done 20 clients or 20 haircuts or 20 colors. And I just was realized like, what can I do to get them more experience? So I came up with doing new talents because it's half price. So they go through the first year, they, they have class eight hours on Mondays and they're with their intern four days a week. And uh, then at the end of that year, uh, they go into new talents, taking clients. They do four days a week there and they're still in class. So at the end of that year, year and a half, you know, they've done thousand, you know, a thousand clients, you know. So now when we put them on the Van Michael floor, they have that experience, that behind the chair adequate, you know, all the skills to keep that high in client. Where before, after one year out of beauty school, they, they didn't have that skill no matter how we train them to be ready. And by putting them in new talents and people know it's half price, I can put somebody in there tomorrow and they have a, a, a week out book. I mean, because of the demand for that quality, because people know that they've been through this training it's, and the price value is very good. So it's just, I, I would say that's been one of our, you know, things that's helped us sustain to be what we are over the years. Like anytime until as of recently, if somebody left or five people left, we always had five people sitting in the harper ready to go yeah, yeah. you know we just move them over i mean because we want people ready to graduate we don't have chairs to open up for them right so you know that way we never have empty chairs because we always have between interns and new talent staff because each location has its own new talent so usually we have 80 people in training right you know ready to go if people leave or if we want to do a new location so yeah, I think, you know, New Talent was probably one of the best things. And the truth is, Horst started New Talents, and he closed it. And um, I knew that what the concept was. I'm not even sure why it didn't work for him, but it didn't. So I went to him and said, do you mind if I trademark this name, and I'm going to do New Talents? And he, he gave me the permission. So I really actually got the idea from Horst. Who okay. started Aveda, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So how long does it take? to transition from new talent to, to uh, the Van Michael salon? What were the tips? Usually they're in new talent about a year to year and a half. Okay. And they've got a hit certain, they've got a yeah, hit they, certain they, they got or something, do they? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Retail sale numbers, client retention, new client retention. Hey, you know, you can't be tardy. You can't be late. You got to do the, you got to do this uh, performance well. So we have coaches in there coaching them not hairdressers we're not combing through the haircuts or checking them because we don't want the clients to think it's a school we're booking them like regular yeah. we have people in there monitoring watching how they 
perform with the clients, you know, right. like they're hitting all their benchmarks. So we're coaching them, but we're not hands-on training them in there. They do that on Monday. Of course, you know, if they had a question, they weren't to stop and ask somebody, we would do it. But it's not, they're licensed hairdressers, so we don't want the clients to think they're going to a beauty school. Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, and you, you've mentioned a couple of times performance will. And I've also yeah. previously heard you talk about 21 service standards. Are they the same yeah. thing or are they separate things? Well, separate things, but they do cross over, you know, some okay. of the things when we're talking about, but they are separate things. So, 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 so what are the uh, performance will, um, you know, things that they've got to hit on that? I should have had my chart in front of me, but number one is we, we would say, have your note cards, your index cards. And of course now people are doing it on their iPads, but you know, if it's a, if it's a client that's been to you before, you want to start off pulling your notes on them last time. Yeah. Cause I would walk up to you and say, Hey Anthony, how was your trip to Jamaica? Or to let them know that I remembered you, you know, or I'd walk up to you and say, Hey, how'd you like those layers? Or maybe I cut all your hair off, you know, because it, you really don't remember that eight weeks later, right? Yeah, of course you don't. You know, yeah. whose hair you cut off. I mean, some people do, but most of them you don't. So mm. we always say start off, you know, reading your notes. Then, you know, we, we the introduction, you know, how you shake hands, how you greet people, consultations. You always do a consultation. We have a list of questions. You know, you ask questions, listen, ask questions, listen, recommend. Then you ask for permission. But the main thing we are adamant, don't ever do a service without showing them a picture of what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Because when you talk to a client, they don't understand square layers or short to them and short to use two different things, red to use different from them. I would do the, the most thorough conversa uh, consultations and I would show a, a picture to the client. So this is what we're going to do. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, so to me, it's all about showing them a picture of the cut and color before yeah. you start. And it's funny, if we ever have redos and we ask those clients at the hairdresser to show you pictures, it's always no. When they do the pictures, we never have redos. Yeah. So, you know, do the consultation. We call it portfolio consultation. That was back when we had the pictures. And, um, you know, just going through the service, real big on giving them a blow dry lesson where you dry 90% of the hair, then you put the brush and the dryer in their hands, let them show some steps. You know, we... We do the makeup touch-ups. We have full-time makeup artists that when the clients are finished, they can go over and have a seat and get a free makeup touch-up. You know, how to rebook, how to rebook all their clients, you know, how to retail sell, how to close the sale. So it's like 11 different steps all in there that we are really adamant on, on uh, them doing to every single client. I'm always like, don't take clients for granted that you've been doing them for 10 years. You know, treat them like it's the first time every time you know because people will move on clients are more fickle than people get than they realize you know once they feel like you're taking them for granted they're gone exactly so, well, jay just so jay jay just handed me our performance show on his phone all right okay so it says uh yes yeah, says renew index cards greeting portfolios neck and shoulder massage performance that's the haircut hot towels I told them to put a hot towel wherever you can. I don't care if it's under the seat, behind the <laughs> neck, over the face. I agree. If Greg Clips is doing it for if Greg Clips is doing it for ten dollars, we ought to do it for ten three hundred, right? Uh, yeah. Road dry lesson, product review, book next appointment, makeup touch up, uh, pull product. We have them to pull the product, take it to set it up on the 
uh, gas, and then update index cards is how the, how they finish. Thank you, Jay. Okay. So, yeah, pretty much. A, that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can remember when I came into your salon. I mean, they didn't know who I were, and uh, the the level of service from everybody. You know, receptionist, the young lady who who gave me a tour. Um, and to introduce me to people in there, it was absolutely five star. I remember going to the washroom and, and no. thinking, this is like a five star hotel. You know, it was like a great experience from beginning to end. And I, and I know there's a lot of, you know, that, that doesn't happen by chance. There's a lot of, you know, systems and structure. And so when you talk about performance well and 21 service standards, you know, you have worked through that journey, that customer journey from beginning to end with a fine tooth comb and, and it really shows. And that's why you've got the business that you've got. Thank you. You know, many, it was about 20, 25 years ago. I went and stayed at a Ritz Carlton and it was the same thing. Like you just said, I'm like, Oh my God, like how do they, have two, 3,000 employees saying the same thing and doing the same things. And I got asking them these questions. And, you know, they do lineups every morning. They, they do huddles. And they go over to 21 standards, you know, every morning. Yeah. And they talk about them. They talk about what went wrong yesterday, what happened. So I found out the name of the company. They're out of San Diego. And I'm blank for a minute. But anyhow, I found out that they had hired this company to work with them. So I ended up hiring this company to come in and work with us. And they even wrote all of our lineups for a year until we figured out how to do our own lineup. So we still do every day. We have lineups. People come in. They get in a huddle, 10 or 15 people. Somebody reads it out loud. They go through customer standard today. We're going to review number 10. We just we go through 21, then we start over. We go through, you know, just over and over, just – repetitive, you know, over and over, just reminding people why we're there and we're five stars. But yeah, we're really just knocked it off from the Ritz Carlton. You know, how do you get everybody on the same page? And it was doing these lineups and doing these customer service standards and just talk about, hey, something somebody did yesterday to go the extra mile or maybe unclient happy, how we something that went wrong and how could we had kept that from happening, you know? So we have these conversations every day and all the locations and the lineups are all day long because people come in on different shifts so people are responsible to rounding people up before the shift and just it takes 10 minutes you know and just kind of do a check make sure everybody's in a dress code everybody looks good the hair looks good and you know just so it's a lot of coaching you know that keeps people on that level yeah yeah okay um, let me talk about money for a minute and, and sort of benchmarks, because I know that you've, uh, you know, over the years, obviously developed some really good systems on that and, and you're very focused on that. So um, you've mentioned price points a couple of times. Uh, do, do you have like a level system within the business and, and where does it start and where does it cap out? We do, but because we've been open so long and people, we have in Atlanta, we have, probably 120 people with 10 years and we have about 30 people with 20 and about 10 with 30. So That's they get to that top level every year. We have to create another top level. It yeah. just goes on and on. So, so really we put them in new talent. They go on the floor at new talent at 35 and they come out of there at like 55 after a year. So they have a very increase and they go into by Michael at $60 you know, when they first go on the floor and our top people charge 200 
Right. And my, so most most of the people, I'd say the average haircut in salon is at least 100. You know, for most stylists, is averaging 100 bucks, you know, a haircut. And then, God, we got callers charging, you know, 100 and 115 for a, a one process. Yeah. You know, because people, you know, every, we have price increases twice a year. If you're booked out two weeks in advance, you have 80% production, you're hitting all your benchmarks, we'll go up on your price. We don't hold you back because you had one in the spring. And we're getting ready this coming fall. We're going to have a really probably a 20% across the board on everything, just with inflation. And I feel like we're undercharging. We're busier than ever. I mean, we have so many stylists booked out eight and 12 weeks out. And to me, that means we're undercharging, you know, yeah. but we, we usually have a price increase twice a year. You know, it's very important. And we, we take control of that. We, we tell them when to go up and when they can't, depending on their books and their benchmark. Yeah. And that way, too, if clients comment it, they can kind of refer it back to us that, you know, we make that decision for them and yeah. keep them from being in that uncomfortable spot that they decided to have a price increase. Yeah, oh, I, I can. But I think, hair, I, I, I think hairdressers in general are undercharging. I really do. Yeah. You know, and I've said that for a long time, and we've had a big push, but, We've kind of, we got up pretty high and we kind of slowed down a little bit, but I'm ready to take it back up to another level, pushing the prices up again. The cost of business is just so expensive now. I mean, you know, and and I think with so many young kids don't want to train like they used to, I think within five years or so, if you're a good hairdresser, you'll be able to charge whatever you want because there's going to be fewer and fewer good hairdressers out there, you know, because they're not getting the training that, people like we did back in our day, God, or like we train our staff, you know, it's harder to find people to want to be that committed and work that hard. So I'm just, I'm definitely on a kick of going up a lot on our prices right now. Yeah. I've never understood that. It's, it's actually a bit of a uniquely American thing uh, where stylists get to decide what they charge. It's like, hang on, it's got my name on the door. It's my business. I decide what you charge and we, we manage that process and, you know, I, I can't imagine why it would ever be any other way. Um, just a, as a business owner, what what are the core numbers, like one or two, that you focus on to drive a business? You know, with all your experience now with these salons, what, what are the metrics that you really want to zoom on because they tell you the story? Well, I like to definitely keep my rent under 6%. We run about 3% on our rent. Wow. You know, so I like to try to do a thousand dollars a square foot. Every one of our locations do a thousand dollars a square foot, even including our barber shop. So that's how I determine how many chairs, how many people I've got to be, what price point I've got to be. Uh, we expect our hairdressers to run about fifteen dollars per customer retail. You know, and we try to have our average ticket somewhere around the hundred and thirty dollar range for all our locations. Every client spending on average of 130 bucks, you know, so that's some of them. I'm trying to keep my payroll, you know, for my service providers around 40%. That's including their benefits and bonuses. You know, I try to keep that. So at the end of the day, and I'm shooting for, you know, a 10% profit, you know, it's not huge, but, you know, I mean, this year, I think we'll probably do 28 million out of our eight salons. So, you know, we're shooting for 10% if we can, but some years it's five because we put so much money back into training. Uh, we do a lot of uh, promotions, advertising. A lot of people don't believe in 
you know, spending money on driving new customers, but we do, you know, we still put our name all over the city, you know, everywhere you go. We, we have a PR company we pay full time. We pay a company to manage Google and Yelp for us. So, you know, we, we spend a lot, but it keeps, we've already this year done 3,000 new clients in Atlanta. Our, our flagship location still averages about 150 new clients a week after 38 years. Wow. You know, so we work very hard on bringing people back and getting new customers. But, yeah, just the average retail sales is important. And, you know, if you're doing $500 a square foot, then you know you got a lot of room to grow. You know, once you get to about 1000 1200 you're pretty maxed out in that location. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, I'm still, uh, you know, heavy breathing at the 3% uh, uh, for, for uh, rent. Is that what you aim for? And that's what you're consistently able to get out of a location? I would be, as a business person, I would be okay anywhere below 6%, but I've yeah. never done percentage rent. That's why I'm right. able to keep it low. Okay. So if my volume's high, it's going to bring my percentage down. Yeah. But yeah. I went to a, one of my last locations I did, I went to a landlord and they have properties all over the country. Mm. And I talked to them about going into a center and they're like, well, we only they can send me the lease as a percentage rent. Mm. I'm like, I don't do percentage rent. They said, well, we only do percentage rent. And they said, we've never had a tenant in history that wasn't on percentage rent. I said, well, if you have me, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be the first one that's not on percentage rent. <laughs> Every, and I did get in there and I'm not on percentage rent. I'm like, yeah, I will not do it. Because we're too busy. Yeah, that's you know what I mean? We're yeah, too busy. I agree. I agree. I, I, think it's, yeah. I think it's fundamentally wrong. You know, that you have yeah, to Yeah, it is. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I won't do it. If you want us in here and we're going to bring in 300 customers every day to your shopping center, yeah, you're not going to gouge me on rent. So I would yeah. walk. You know, I would never do that. But So that's why we're at 3% because yeah. it's all flat-based and we're doing $1,000 per square foot in every location. But I look at demographics really hard, like how many people live in a one-mile radius, two miles, and three miles. And then I try to make sure – in, in those rates, the average household income is always over 100,000 a year. You know what I mean? I'm not going mm. to put a location in somewhere that doesn't have, in a three-mile radius, you know, a couple hundred thousand people living, and that's not making 100,000. You know, yeah. if you want to charge a lot of money, you got to be in expensive neighborhoods. Sure. So I, I, can, I can truly say all eight of our locations are in primo spots, and I think it's made a difference, you know, but everything's negotiable you know i mean i have negotiated almost every center i am my brokers always tell me i have the cheapest rent because i negotiate really hard you know well and as you say you are bringing in 300 people a day or whatever the number is into that center that's that's worth something yeah. to them you know to, to have right. as, a, as an anchor tenant um yeah Retail, you, you sort of alluded to the fact that it is sliding these days, you know, due to the internet, etc. And I know that, that you probably don't measure it this way, but you, I'm just going to ask you because you might know it. What, what do you aim for as a percentage of your total revenue coming from retail? Well, we aim for about, we'd like, we're not hitting these numbers now, but we'd like it to be 20%. I think we're about 16%. Okay, you know, still- but I do believe, I, I do believe, like, we have the best opportunity of anybody to sell to that client. We're touching them. Totally. You know, if we're doing our job, a horse always said, be the one who 
teaches and educates. And I believe if you teach and educating your client, you're not selling them, you're giving them information in return, they're going to purchase something. Yeah. And if we don't do that, then it's fair game. They're going to buy something somewhere. So I don't even hold it against the internet or the companies or all the other places. You can get a million bottles of shampoo. It's our job. And the only reason our retail sales are really down is when we're slacking off. In the last two years, we've gone down. And I think part of it is because of COVID. We ain't been able to have our in-staff meetings, coaching people, reminding people to stay focused on that client. Because if you do that client and you're doing all the right things and you're educating them and giving them a blow-dry lesson, you're going to sell retail products. So I think we're down. But I think it's our own, our own fault that we've now that COVID is kind of over. <laughs> I know I hear it spiking up again. Yeah. But uh, that we get focused and we can get our numbers back up. I, I really do. Yeah. Okay. I, I just want to ask you about your team and how you create such a strong culture. If you're a salon owner listening to this, what, what would be the number one tip you'd give them for creating a strong team culture? Well, I think the training program really has creates that culture for you, you know, and then, I mean, it starts off with you. I mean, like I said, for 20 years, I was in the salon doing 25, 30 clients a day, giving them my best service. So I have a lot of people still there from when I was there that are carrying that torch to the guardian of the culture. So you got to have those leaders. You got to make sure they don't get complacent, but it all comes in the training program. Like, you know, on Mondays they come in, they have a, an hour class every day for two years on culture, adequate, customer service standards. And you really create that by, by the education that you're giving them, you know, and never being complacent. I mean, I always tell my staff, when we're, when we're not the best salon in town, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm going to sell out. I'm closing up. You know, we can only be the best or we can't, we can't do this anymore. So they just know what your expectations are. Yeah. You got to yeah. inspect what you expect. Right. Yeah. So they know, I mean, I visit the salons. I'm in the salons all the time. I'm right around. I visit, I'm meeting with people. I'm watching, I'm watching the numbers, but I can, I can see when we're slipping. So I, it's my job to make sure that, I show up and meet with the top people like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? So it's really just about the training program, what you're training people, what you're expect, making sure they have clear expectations of what the company is all about. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your biggest strength, you as an individual? What is my biggest strength? I have great endurance. I can work a lot of hours. <laughs> no, I, I think I think I'm a good listener, you know, and I have, uh, you know, that I try to put the shoe on the other foot when I'm talking to my staff. You know what I mean? I don't I don't feel like it's my way or the highway. I I like getting feedback from all of my staff and my CEO and my managers and. You know, a lot of times I might want to do it this way and I listen to them and it's not the best way. So I think, I guess at the end of the day, the world would be being open-minded, you know, to change and what people want, you know, and not just thinking I know everything because I don't. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm always, and I know most people probably, and I'm, I know you're the same way that, you know, that we're always students. We're always willing to learn and we're always willing to change. Yeah. You know, so that's, I think that's my biggest strength that I'm, I'm willing to make changes, you know, for yeah. what people want. How much? And, and I truly, I truly want a, the, the salon to be a win-win for everybody. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't try to pull out everything I can. I dump tons of money back into the staff. I mean, I want my staff to have a good life and have, we have, we have a couple of people now they've hit 30 years. They have a million dollars in their pension plan, you Fantastic. know? So I want to be able, I want to be able to, you know, just be open-minded that, you know, it's not about me. It's about all of us, you know? Mm. How much of that do you put down to you? Cause I've often heard you talk about your family, you know, your parents. Um, yeah. How much of it do you put down to your upbringing as to, you know, why you are the way you are business-wise? I, I say hiring people. I'm like, try to hire people who, when we interview them, try to find people who want to serve because we can't really train people to want to do that. So my parents, you know, they're very strict. My dad, you know, we had jobs starting at 12 years old, you know, mowing everybody's lawns, you know. My first real job came at 15 as a janitor, you know, mm -hmm. and my mom worked her whole life. So they, you know, we did all the house chores inside out. And, you know, every, every time you talk to them to this day, my parents are still alive. They, they're my neighbors, but we still say yes, ma'am, and no, sir. And, you know, we didn't talk back. So, they, you know, the, your parents, you know, I have two kids. My kids are great. Uh, luckily, I, I, I feel very blessed. I just raised them the same way, like, you know, to be respectful of everybody, no matter where you're from, what you do. And, and the world owes you nothing, you know, work hard, you well, know. And, yeah. We have a lot of people, people don't realize how much time they have. You know, if you get up at six o'clock in the morning and you go to bed at 10 at night, you have a long day. You can work, you can work out. I mean, there's so much wasted time, you know, that I see people. People like, I, sometimes they go, I want to work three days. I look at them and go, why? I mean, I do. I'm like, you're single. <laughs> you have no kids. <laughs> like, yeah. What are you going to do with all that time? But, you know, it's not none of my business. But, yeah, I think. Family is really the root of everything, you know, at the end of the day. And I've, I'm lucky, like I said, we didn't grow up with money, but we grew up with a lot of love and discipline, you know. So, yeah, at least I got dealt a good hand of being in, in a good family. Yeah. Both, yeah. both my brothers. Both, both my brothers are hairdressers. There's only three boys. So, in the, in yeah. your business? Yeah, my older brothers, too, but they went to school together five years right. after I was in the business. Okay. And uh, my brother, before we had Van Michael, he moved out of Atlanta and opened up his own salon. So he had a salon before we did. So right. he still has his own salon yeah. a couple hours south of Atlanta. But, I mean, we're very close, but he lives on a farm. Was my, we had a family farm. He built a house. So when we opened up Seven Chairs, he had no reason to go, well, I'm going to move back to Atlanta, you know, sure. so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm close to both my brothers. We're all hairdressers. So, and yeah, what, about, what about your kids? Are, are your kids in the business? Uh, they well. My son graduated from Georgia Tech two and a half years ago, and always said he didn't want to be in the business. So, as soon as he got out of school, he's like, "Well, Dad, what does it look like if I come to work for you?" And I said, "Well." I've never had a son who came to work for me, so I don't know. <laughs> we'll see if we can figure it out. He's been there two and a half years, he's done a great job, very proud of him, but he has informed me a couple months ago that this is not what he wants to do, so I don't know. So he's going out to find his own thing. He wants to be in real estate, so yeah. I wish him all the best. I said, I'm not going anywhere. My daughter is at the University of Georgia still, so she's 20. She doesn't even think about it. You know, at this point, so I didn't have kids. So I was 40 and my first one was born when I was 40 and the second one when I was 45. So okay. I kind of got a late start to that, you know, so 
they, they have time to figure it out. So I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. I, I know. I figure I'll probably do 10 more years is what I'm thinking. But I'll, figure, I'll be 75 then. I figure that'll be 55 years of it. <laughs> be well, time to figure somebody to turn it over to. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you are incredibly, I mean, that's the other thing that we haven't touched on. Uh, a lot of people will know this about you. That you are, you know, an absolute, I'm trying to find the right word for it. You, I know you mountain bike competitively, you know, you, you kayak, you know, whenever I see something on social media, you're doing, you're pretty hardcore and you're incredibly yeah. fit. Like regardless of what age you're at, you are. Oh, thank you incredibly fit yeah. and healthy so uh yeah there's no reason why you yeah. can't keep going until you're 75 yeah yeah I have, no, I have no reason i have a good balance i work but i play too and yeah time with my kids like i said we have a lot of time if we get up and get moving you know yeah, exactly. that's what i feel like yeah yeah, yeah. We, have, we have a plenty of time to do it all you know so yeah, yeah. well next time you're in Atlanta, you gotta you gotta let me know i'll take you to dinner i, oh, I don't definitely. know if i knew you were in town before if i was gone or I'm sorry, I missed you. Uh, I was. It was just before COVID, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think you were there. I don't. I don't think you were. Right. And I had a very short window of time I could get there. Right. Um, and I forget the, the the lady's name who showed me around, but she was. Uh, Maybe was her name Lori, the manager, who'd been with us for like twenty years. It, it might have been. It might have been. I, yeah. I don't have the best memory for names, but yeah. uh, uh, now. But yeah. she was. She was fantastic. I actually do think. Yeah, that she was yeah. a manager or the manager. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was. She was fantastic. So well, we like, we have a we, we we have an open policy. I mean, anybody who visits, I mean, they don't even have to let me know. I mean, they walk in any location. The managers are train to tour them and welcome them. I mean, we never say, oh, you can't come in here. We have some secret because we don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah, we welcome people to come by and visit. We love it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think the secret is do the hard work, isn't it? And continue to do it yeah. and consistently do it and never stop learning and keep evolving and implement, implement, implement and always be looking for a better way, you know? A lot of people yeah. look for a shortcut. You're a great example of there's no shortcuts here. There's no secrets about hard work and consistency and all those other things. Yeah, so, I always um, tell myself, I wish, I wish there was a shortcut, but I hadn't figured it out yet. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you have built what is arguably, you know, one of the very best salon businesses I've seen anywhere. And I've seen a lot of salon businesses. And uh, coming from you, I appreciate it. Your books are fantastic. You gave them to me five years ago, and I read them, and they're great information, very spot on. So, congrats! Fantastic, thanks for that. One last thing I just want to ask you what's the most important thing you've learned in life? The secret to the universe is relationships. Okay, good. Yeah, that's all yeah. that needs to be said. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that is true. <laughs> in this industry for sure um so whereabouts can people connect with uh you or the brand on uh instagram or other social media channels then we have uh we have van michael uh salon instagram uh we have van michael studio the salon is more customer based van michael studios for education you know we're always doing haircuts and stuff on there but then then it's just simple. I, my own personal is just band council. Nothing creative there. <laughs> so, yeah. 
All right. Well, I'll put those links okay. on our website and in the show notes for the, today's podcast. Uh, if you listen to this okay, podcast great. with Van Council and you've enjoyed it, do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories. You know, I think you've just been listening to a masterclass on how to build a business. And, and uh, if I was someone listening to this, I'd listen to it more than once because there is so many uh, gems of, you know, hard fought wisdom there. And it's an incredible business that's been built on the other end of it. So don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple podcast app. So to wrap up, Van Council, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time today on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It was my pleasure, Anthony. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.